Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities in connection with the administration's initiative to reform the U.S. financial regulatory system. This update covers the period from March 2nd to April 1st. So let's get started with the U.S. Congress. On March 4th, the ranking member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, and three other Senate Democrats sent a letter to Securities Exchange Commission Chair Jay Clayton urging him to withdraw the proposed SEC rules on proxy advisors and shareholder proposals. In the letter, the senator stated, quote, substantial elements of both proposals should be changed to protect investor rights, keep corporate management accountable, and preserve the appeal of American capital markets, unquote. More specifically, with respect to the proxy advisor proposal, the letter includes the following criticisms. First, that that the proxy advisor proposal goes far beyond what's necessary to improve conflict disclosure or achieve accurate proxy voting advice. Second, the SEC's argument that the prevalence of errors in proxy advisor reports made the increased regulation necessary is in direct conflict with data contained in the proposal that indicates that there were more than 17,000 shareholder votes in a three-year period from 2016 to 2018, but companies filed only 260 supplemental proxy statements claiming errors by proxy advisors. And of those 260 supplemental proxy statements, the SEC classified only 54 as factual errors and none of them as material or affecting the outcome of a vote. And three, the proxy advisor proposal gives companies the ability to pre-review proxy advisor reports twice, unnecessarily interposing companies between proxy advisor firms and their institutional investor clients and threatening the independence and completeness of proxy advisor reports. With respect to the proposal to amend the shareholder proposal rule, the letter includes the following criticisms. First, that raising the ownership requirement for filing shareholder proposals from $2,000 to $25,000 is particularly concerning because it, quote, discriminates against the non-wealthy investors that this commission claims are priorities, unquote. Second, the letter also cites research by former SEC Commissioner Robert Jackson showing that the proposed new resubmission thresholds would have excluded proposals on climate change reporting for diversity and political spending. And third, the letter states that the proposal fails to prioritize the interests of mom and pop investors. Also on March 4th, the House Committee on Financial Services issued a report criticizing several recommendations relating to investors that were contained in the president's budget released on February 10th. Among the items of interest to investors in the committee report includes the following. First, the report notes that a line item in the president's budget calls for the SEC to absorb the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board beginning in 2022. 
The committee report pointed out that the president's budget calls for only an additional $55 million in funding for the SEC in fiscal 2021, yet the PCOB's 2020 budget was $284.7 million. The committee report warns that, quote, recklessly eliminating the PCOB and its staff with expertise in overseeing the audit industry is a serious threat to investors and market integrity. A second issue mentioned in the committee report, the committee recommends that the SEC take action to safeguard the principle of one share, one vote, and shareholders' ability to submit proposals. The committee report states, quote, unfortunately, the SEC's proposed rules from November 2019 would collectively weaken shareholder rights and deprive them of independent information about changes to companies. The committee urges the SEC to rethink these problematic proposals, unquote. A third item of interest in the committee report, the report requests that the SEC ensure that public companies disclose environmental, social, and governance information, such as exposure to risks related to climate change and cybersecurity threats, because such information is material to investors. And finally, the committee report requests that the SEC complete its rulemaking obligations under the Dodd-Frank Act, including establishing a comprehensive regulatory scheme for security-based swaps, enhanced investor disclosures, and executive compensation rules for public companies and SEC-regulated entities. On March 11th, the Democratic leaders of the House Committee on Financial Services sent a letter to SEC Chairman Jay Clayton urging the commission to require public companies to fully disclose in detailed statements to investors their exposures to risks related to COVID-19 and the steps they're taking to mitigate these risks. Stressing that it's critical that investors and the markets be given the information they need to make investment decisions, the committee members asked that the SEC utilize all of the tools it has available to protect U.S. investors and markets by ensuring public companies are fully and promptly disclosing all material information related to this pandemic. On March 23rd, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi of California unveiled the House Democrats' 1,400-page economic stimulus bill, H.R. 6379, entitled Take Responsibility for Workers and Families Act. Some provisions of interest to investors in the bill include the following. The bill includes provisions that temporarily halt rulemakings related to COVID-19 for federal financial regulators, including the SEC. The bill will also impose a temporary ban on stock buybacks for all public companies through the length of the coronavirus crisis. The bill also includes provisions that public companies disclose in their annual reports risk to the disruption of their supply chains, including the risk disruptions would have on the workforce and to develop and disclose supply chain disruption contingency plans. The bill also includes a provision that public companies disclose their risks and exposure to public health crises that the World Health Organization classifies as pandemics, including the expected impacts on covered companies' workforces and the steps they are taking to mitigate these risks. The bill also includes provisions imposing conditions on the beneficiaries of government assistance 
in connection with COVID-19, including a ban on all stock buybacks, executive bonuses, golden parachutes, and federal lobbying until all federal aid in connection with COVID-19 is repaid to the government. The bill also includes provisions requiring all accelerated filers receiving federal aid to permanently require worker representation on their corporate boards and to annually disclose information related to human capital management, political spending, and country-by-country tax reporting and how federal aid funds are being used to help its workers. Finally, the bill includes a provision requiring all companies receiving federal aid in connection with COVID-19 to limit executive compensation to a 50 to one ratio to median worker pay. The House stimulus bill, however, was never pursued in the House or Senate. Instead, it was intended to influence the Senate economic stimulus bill. That bill is entitled the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act. The CARES Act passed the Senate on March 25th by a vote of 96 to 0, followed by passage in the House on March 27th by a voice vote, and a few hours later being signed into law by President Trump. Some provisions of the CARES Act that may be of interest to investors include one, uh, companies that accept loans from the Treasury Department would not be permitted to pay dividends or repurchase their stock for the length of their loan plus one year. Two, for companies receiving financial assistance, corporate executives who have made more than 425000 last year are prevented from getting a raise until at least a year after the loan is repaid. For those corporate executives paid more than $3 million last year, the CARES Act limits their future pay to $3 million plus half the difference between their previous pay and $3 million. Those limits apply to bonuses, stock awards, and other benefits rather than just salaries. And finally, the CARES Act uh, also includes similar restrictions to airline executives with respect to executive compensation for a two-year period. Let's move now to recent activities of the Securities and Exchange Commission. On March 2nd, the SEC adopted by a vote of three to one with Commissioner Allison Heron-Lee dissenting Amendments to Rule 3-10 and 3-16 of Regulation SX, which addresses financial disclosure requirements for guarantors, issuers of guaranteed securities, and affiliates whose securities collateralize a registrant's securities. The Commission voted to adopt its 2018 proposal substantially as proposed with certain modifications. Commissioner Lee's dissent referenced CII's November comment letter and included the following criticism of the final rule. Quote, as a number of commentators on this rulemaking observed, we should be chiefly concerned with the views of investors on disclosure. They are, after all, the end users of the information. Nevertheless, we substitute our own judgment about what disclosure is best for investors in place of what they have actually told us they want. For example, at the proposing stage for today's rule, investors express concerns that we were permitting the alternative disclosure that is allowed by these rules in lieu of subsidiary financial statements to occur outside the financial statement footnotes. Their concern was that such disclosure is not audited. The proposal at least contemplated 
requiring the alternative disclosure be made in financial statement footnotes in some subsequent period reporting by the parent companies. The final rule, however, abandons this approach, permitting the alternative disclosure to occur outside of the financial statements at the time of registration and in all subsequent periodic reporting, swinging even further in, in the direction that troubled investors, unquote. Also on March 2nd, the SEC issued a request for comment on its current requirements that restrict the use of potentially misleading fund names in Rule 35D-1 under the Investment Company Act of 1940 and the anti-fraud provisions of the federal securities laws in light of market and other developments. The Commission's names rule was proposed in 1997 and adopted in 2001 and has not been amended since that time. The rule generally requires a registered investment company or business development company with a name suggesting a particular investment, industry, country, or geographic focus to invest at least 80% of its assets in the type of investment, industry, country, or geographic region suggested by its name. The SEC notes that its staff and the industry have identified a number of challenges regarding the application of the names rule, including that one, the regulation's asset-based test may not be well-suited to derivatives that provide significant exposure to a particular type of investment. Two, the number of index-based funds is growing and indices are not subject to the names rule, although the SEC staff has concerns that some index names may not be closely tied to the type of investment suggested by the index's name, which raises questions under the names rule. And three, an increasing number of funds have investment mandates that require qualitative adjustments and include such things as ESG in the fund name, and that these types of funds raise issues under the names rule parameters. The comment period for the request for comments is May 5th. CI currently plans to submit a comment letter in response to the request. On March 10th, in a speech at the Council of Institutional Investors Spring Conference, SEC Commissioner Elad Roseman discussed several matters related to the proxy process, including the Commission's December 2019 proxy advisor proposal. He acknowledged concerns that the proxy advisor proposal's potential introduction of a time period during which soliciting parties could review and provide feedback to a proxy voting advice business on its voting advice prior to its distribution to the business clients could disrupt current voting practices and said he's open to considering other ways to accomplish the policy goals of improving the total mix of information available to the marketplace and enhancing fairness and transparency in the voting process. Specifically, he highlighted one idea offered by commentators to provide a contemporaneous review period for companies during which a proxy voting advice business would send its report to the issuer at the same time it distributes the report to its clients and then notify its clients if the issuer raises objections to the report within a short time period. Addressing certain potential conflicts of interest in the proxy process, Commissioner Roisman questioned the premise that all clients of proxy voting advice businesses have the same interests when it comes to voting outcomes and asserted that there should be greater transparency about how this voting advice is developed, who is involved in the process, and what that may mean for the interests of fund investors. Outlining additional steps the commission could take to improve the proxy process, Commissioner Roisman discussed the importance of identifying actors who outsource their voting decisions to proxy advice businesses and assessing 
how they believe they are fulfilling their fiduciary duty to clients, noting that he hopes to see more SEC examinations focusing on this area. Commissioner Roisman also expressed concern that some market participants have the mistaken impression that they can evade required beneficial ownership disclosures by coordinating their voting decisions on important matters presented at a shareholder meeting through a proxy voting advice business and suggesting that the commission should assess whether shareholders acting through voting advice businesses are operating as groups in our securities markets for purposes of beneficial ownership rules. With regard to proxy plumbing and in particular end-to-end voting confirmation, Commissioner Reisman observed that there is broad consensus that investors and markets would benefit from votes being confirmed in each election and all market participants involved would have to sacrifice something in order for the system to undergo meaningful change. He stressed, however, that the goal of any changes to the proxy plumbing should be designed to serve the interests of the ultimate retail investors. Finally, finally, Commissioner Roisman suggested that the SEC consider adopting a universal proxy rule, which he argued could provide benefits to everyone involved in a proxy contest. On March 12th, the SEC adopted by a vote of three to one with Commissioner Allison Heron Lee dissenting amendments to Exchange Act Rule 12B-2 that would revise the definitions of accelerated filer and large accelerated filer to more appropriately tailor the types of issuers that are captured in the definitions and reduce unnecessary burdens for certain smaller issuers while maintaining investor protections. The amendments, which the commission adopted substantially as proposed, among other measures, exclude from the accelerated and large accelerated filer definitions an issuer that is eligible to be a smaller reporting company and had annual revenues of less than $100 million in the most recent fiscal year for which audited financial statements are available. The amendments also raised the transition thresholds for an accelerated large accelerated filer becoming a non-accelerated filer from 50 million to 60 million and for existing large accelerated filer status from 500 million to 560 million. The amendments also add a revenue test to the transition thresholds for exiting both accelerated and large accelerated filer status. As a result of the amendments, certain issuers with less than 100 million in revenues will not be required to have their management assessment of the effectiveness of internal control over financial reporting be attested to and reported on by their independent auditor. Commissioner Lee, Commissioner Lee's dissent included a number of criticisms of the proposal, many of which were consistent with CII's July comment letter. Among those criticisms, Commissioner Lee stated, quote, financial reporting is only as reliable as the controls in place to ensure its accuracy. Thus, internal controls over financial reporting form what we have called the first line of defense in, direct, in detecting and preventing material errors or fraud in financial reporting. Today's rule diminishes the role of the gatekeeper, the auditor, in that first line of defense, thereby increasing the risk to investors of unreliable financial reporting, unquote. Commissioner Lee also said that by extending the exemption to smaller companies, the SEC is sacrificing important protection for investors in exchange for a modest cost reduction for those companies. She added that the cost savings could be negated by an increased cost of capital since investors express strong opposition to this amendment and may require a premium to compensate for the higher risk associated with it. The final amendments will become effective 30 days following their publication in the Federal Register and will apply 
to annual report filings due on or after the effective date. On March 13th, the staff of the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance and Investment Management issued guidance addressing compliance with the federal proxy rules for upcoming annual meetings in light of health, transportation, and other logistical issues raised by the spread of COVID-19. SEC staff will take the position that an issuer that has already mailed and filed its definitive proxy materials can notify shareholders of a change in the date, time, or location of its annual meeting without mailing additional soliciting materials or amending its proxy materials under certain conditions. With respect to holding virtual shareholder meetings, the staff expects an issuer to notify its shareholders, intermediaries in the proxy process, and other market participants of such plans in a timely manner and disclose clear directions as to the logistical details of the meeting, including how shareholders can remotely access, participate in, and vote at such a meeting. They cautioned, however, that the ability to conduct a virtual meeting is governed by state law where permitted and the issuer's governing documents. CII issued a statement on March 16th that clarifies that in our view, companies should hold virtual only annual meetings only when extenuating circumstances such as the COVID-19 pandemic warrant it. And our statement offers guidance on creating shareholder-oriented meetings under all circumstances. Also on March 16th, CII wrote a comment letter to the SEC challenging some of the proposed amendments to Rule 2-01 on qualifications of accountants. In our comment letter, CII did not support the proposed materiality requirement that would only consider a sister entity to be an affiliate of a controlling company if it is deemed to be a material relationship. CI believes this proposed change could exclude certain sister entities with relationships to auditors that might affect the objectivity and reliability of the audit findings. The proposal would also create a transition framework that would relax auditor independent standards related to mergers and acquisitions. CI also opposed this element of the proposal, noting that auditor in independence is critical to investor protection, especially in the cases of mergers and acquisitions, which often have a negative impact on long-term shareholder value. On March 26th, the SEC issued an order extending uh, conditional reporting relief for public companies and other filers that are unable to meet a filing deadline due to circumstances related to COVID-19. The order provides an extension of up to 45 days for filings required under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 that are due on or before July 1st, 2020, other than filings on Schedule 13D. The order supersedes and extends an earlier order issued on March 4th that applied to filings due on or after April 30th. A company that intends to rely on this relief is required to file a Form 8K or for foreign private issuers a Form 6K by the original filing deadline stating four items. One, the company's relying on the order. Two, a brief description of the reasons why it could not file the report, schedule, or form on a timely basis. Three, the estimated date when it expects to file the applicable report, schedule, or form. And four, a company-specific risk factor explaining the impact, if material, of COVID-19 on its business. The order also provides that if the report cannot be filed in a timely manner due to a third party's inability to furnish a, an opinion, report, or certification, a signed statement of that person must be provided. And finally, the order provides that a separate Form 8K or Form 6K is required for each filing that is delayed in reliance on the order. 
In other governance issues, on March 18th, the Delaware Supreme Court in Salzburg versus Schiabucci held that corporations can require investors to file securities fraud claims arising in federal court. The decision overturned a 2018 Chancery Court decision, which found that form selection clauses in the corporate charters of Blue Apron, Roku, and Stitch Fix were permissible because Delaware corporate law gives companies broad latitude to manage internal affairs, including the disclosure decisions underlying Section 11 claims. CII had supported the Chancery Court view in an amicus brief. In writing for the unanimous Supreme Court, Justice Karen Valhura stated, quote, a bylaw that seeks to regulate the form in which such intra-corporate litigation can occur is a provision that addresses the management of the business and the conduct of the affairs of the corporation and is thus facially valid, unquote. As a result of the court's decision, a number of corporate law firms are encouraging their clients to revisit the potential adoption of federal form selection provisions in their charters or bylaws. The court's decision discusses the validity of mandatory shareholder arbitration provisions in a footnote to the opinion. The meaning of that footnote, however, is unclear. CII surveyed four legal experts on the implications of the footnote and included the responses in a document which we posted to CII's correspondence page. Finally, in other government news, on March 19th, CII wrote a comment letter to the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board in response to its concept release on quality control standards. The letter highlighted CI's support for accurate, reliable audit financial statements and suggested the following measures to improve quality control. First, independent board members at the larger audit firms to promote meaningful governance and oversight. Second, the use and reporting of quantifiable performance measures that include at a minimum a workload measure and an experience measure. For the <clears throat> second, the use and reporting of quantifiable performance measures that include at a minimum a workload measure and an experience measure for the partners and engagement team staff. And third, public disclosure by larger audit firms of their quality control systems, including annual audited financial statements. That concludes my corporate governance and financial regulation update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff at Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.